Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert F. Price. Robert F. Price, host of the Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomigraph, uh, he didn't write it, there's the incarnation of God, right? why in this specific, this amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert Price, Price, host the Bible Geek. Hello, I'm your host, uh, Bob Swirsky here on uh, the Super Geeks podcast, where we're all interested in the Chicago Bibles. And I'd like to introduce uh, my co-hosts here on the Super Geeks. Uh, that'd be C.H. Dodd, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, and Alfred Loisy, who will help uh, field some questions here from you Super Geeks. Okay, let's take a look at the first one from... Irene Delcy, um, something has been bothering me about the story of Jairus' daughter. In your last podcast, you detailed how unlikely it was that the family could keep secret that their little girl was raised from the dead. True enough, but I had always understood Mark 5.43 differently. Mark writes, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. But I thought this referred to the method of healing, resurrecting the girl, not to the fact that she was alive. After all, the family could have had in an, or had in an ordinary but skilled physician who diagnosed the case of apparent death and prevented them from giving the poor girl a premature burial. In other words, Jesus meant... Don't go around telling people that a miracle occurred. Uh, not, don't tell anyone she's still alive. Surely this must be a plausible explanation for what the Mark and Redactor meant. What do you think? Uh, well, uh, CH, uh, might have called you Chuck Dodd. Uh, what do you think? Let me let you handle this one. Hey, uh, thank you, Bob. Uh, no, no difficulty at all. Uh, Irene has a real point, and in fact, uh, the, uh, though, though she does interpret the story, as many have done, that Mark means to tell us that the girl was only thought dead, and that Jesus knew she was not somehow supernatural knowledge, whatever, uh, and that uh, he did somehow bring her out of a coma. 
that uh, may well be what it uh, means, and it's a form-critical matter because uh, we know there are many Hellenistic parallels to this in which Asclepiades, the physician, and various others do save someone, usually a girl, from premature burial. And the point is, though everyone else was incompetent, uh, the, the great healer, whether a god or, a, as you suggest, a physician, uh, did know enough to uh, save the, the poor person from, uh, from being killed. But what you're asking about is really another question, uh, th that of redaction criticism, because uh, the girl is clearly thought to be dead, and Jesus says that she is not a big clue that uh, she uh, that he knows she's still alive but in a coma. But uh, why, if that were simply the case, why would Jesus tell them to be quiet about it? Why not just say, uh, "Hey, everybody, the teacher was right. Uh, she she wasn't dead." Um, what would be the problem there? Uh, it seems to me that anyway, I'm sorry, I, I'll, I'll just take it over from, from Chuck Don here. Uh, what would be the problem with that? Uh, there's, uh, in, I mean, uh, especially if you're right about the, uh, the uh, bringing her out of a coma, that only exacerbates the problem. Uh, why not tell them that uh, uh, he he healed her, if that's, quote, all, unquote, it was? It seems to me that Vreda was right that this is artificial because uh, the, uh, the the more weight you place on the, uh, the healing as opposed to a resurrection, uh, the uh, more difficult it is to uh, explain the secrecy unless it's just an arbitrary insertion of the messianic secret theme. But I think you're right about uh, what's going on there. Uh, this set of questions was inspired by a YouTube video. If atheists talked about the Hulk like Jordan Peterson talks about the Bible. Um, I grew, this is from our buddy Lachlan, the Vampire Slayer. I grew up watching The Incredible Hulk, and without a large allowance or even a nearby comic book store, my familiarity with a character comes from Bill Bixby's portrayal of Dr. David Banner. I slowly and reluctantly accepted the idea of Bruce Banner. I can see why they changed it, though. David contrasts nicely to the Goliath that is his alter ego. Hey, it's pretty good Lachlan. I never thought of that. Um, is there anything like this swapping of names for literary purposes in the Bible? I know that John makes up entire characters uh, seen nowhere else, but are there any other stories where a name is changed out for an expressly literary or metaphorical purpose? Uh, Rudy, you want to take that one? Well, of course I do. Um, there are a couple of famous examples where it looks like John was not the only creator of characters. And uh, those characters turn out to be what Todorov called a narrative man. Someone with simply a narrative function personified with a tip-off name, uh, such as uh, Jairus, uh, which seems to mean he shall raise up. <coughs> That's just 
just what uh, he's asking Jesus to do, uh, correct? Uh, nicht wahr? And, uh, or uh, Martha, Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha means lady of the house, and that's just what she is and nothing more. She has Jesus Christ there expounding eternal verities, and all she can think of is getting the food on the table. Um, uh, then the Zacchaeus seems to come from Zacchae, almsgiving, and what does he do? Give away half of his income uh, to others uh, and uh, pays back those he may have overcharged, etc., etc. Uh, but as to name changes, probably those in the Old Testament uh, represent uh, harmonizations of kindred but separate traditions, like Abram and Abraham. We have the uh, redactor saying that uh, Abram became Abraham, but they both pretty much mean the same thing. Sarai and Sarah, just variant names like uh, Charles and Carl. Uh, no, no real uh, significance to that. Uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob uh, from uh, 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 Israel and, and Jacob. Um, these were probably two different fictive characters, each functioning as a genealogical link between tribes, originally disparate. Uh, and uh, each has a different name because of a different story. Jacob, Jakub, uh, is he who grasps the heel or the supplanter because of the whole cycle of stories in which he replaces his uh, older brother Esau as the uh, inheritor. Um, Israel, the, the one who struggles with God or on whose behalf God struggles, if you like. Uh, and uh, so here you you had to uh, pretend that the symbolic ancestors of two different tribes with the same guy once the two groups merged. Um, the best example of which I can think of what you're describing is the substitution in Matthew of the name Matthew for the name Levi, the, the converted tax collector. In Mark, there is simply a tax collector named Levi who becomes a disciple, and later we read a list of names of disciples, and Levi is not included in the twelfth. It's However, uh, there is a, a Matthew uh, who is uh, about whom no more is said, but in the Gospel of Matthew, both characters are combined so that uh, the story of Levi leaving his tax booth behind uh, to become a disciple now uh, becomes Matthew, the tax collector, etc., and when his name pops up on the, the list again, this time he is called Matthew, the tax collector. And uh, the point of this, though not very theological, is to try to, uh, more literary, is to not waste a good disciple calling narrative by having it concern someone of whom one never hears again. Why not associate it with uh, one of the known disciples? And why Matthew? Well, that's a pun. Uh, it's related uh, to the Greek word mathetes, disciple over the surprise that is. But uh, 
I'll hand it over to uh, Price, this guy who's uh, mopping up the studio here. Okay, uh, Lachlan says, I admit I've had the term Hulk on my mind since my wife and I started looking up types of ships. And it turns out a Hulk is a ship that has been stripped of its insides. Seems to have evolved into the other definition, predating the character, though, from the word originally referring not to hollowed-out ships, but to very large cargo ships that were difficult to maneuver. Still, it brought to mind a CD set of an extended sermon I purchased at a library book sale where the preacher talked about how the body and the flesh are not the same thing, and that his biblical understanding of the flesh would be closer to my own understanding of the midbrain or mammal brain, that part of the cortical structure that seeks out animal delights, to which our neocortex or human brain says, ah, no, not now. Is this simply his inspired reading of the text, or is there an actual Greek uh, basis for this linguistic distinction? It's hard to be sure, but I think there is not. I think this is like the alleged distinction between agape and uh, philea, as if the one meant uh, disinterested Buddhist-like uh, compassion, regardless of any subjective attraction to the object, um, self-giving love, unmerited love, etc., whereas philea means uh, um, friendship or literally brotherly love. But it turns out that's not really the case. They were synonyms in, in New Testament Greek. Same sort of thing here, it seems to me. I believe that the flesh is um, at least, uh, a play, in a Platonic sense, the physical existence insofar as it gives rise to fleshly appetites, food, sex, amusements, etc., and that they become the occasion of temptation and sin. And uh, you have to take that whole uh, cluster of notions together. Uh, you, it's meaningless to separate them out, and in the same way, uh, Gnostics said, well, Plato was right, uh, perhaps even more right than he knew, uh, that the, um, the body is not only a prison for the soul, but uh, also a uh, uh, hypnotic uh, captivity it's, uh, of addiction, uh, so that the flesh it, it cannot help be sinful. So they were more radical and therefore more ascetical and in, uh, in self-denial. And when uh, in the Pauline epistles, when we read that the spirit is always striving against the flesh, I think that's in Galatians 6, uh, that I think doesn't mean, well, it's the uh, sinful nature. He doesn't mean the physical body. Oh, come on. Sure he does. Uh, it's just a modern uh, psychologizing of the text to avoid the slightly uh, fanatical asceticism uh, boosted in the New Testament. Okay, I'll give it back to Bob Swirsky and the others in a second. Uh, finally, is the Hulk a decent representation of the Paulinist or Marcionist fleshly man? Not merely motivated by rage, of course, but by passions, not really considering the full consequences of his actions. I tend to take a very literal reading of in the flesh, in the sense that even a few minutes of verified astral out of flesh
flesh projection really shakes up one's worldview in regards to the relationship not only between body and mind, but of bodily desires. Uh, well, that's all, sort of two questions, but I would say the Hulk is a very uh, uh, good uh, example of that. It's. I think that uh, Stan and Jack had in mind something a bit more modern psychologically, that it's flesh versus reason, uh, that it's something like stoicism, uh, that it's just a, you know, a shade difference from Platonism and Gnosticism, but the, the Hulk is pure id. Uh, and um, the uh, and and Bruce Banner is the uh, super ego. I'm not sure who the ego is, but uh, Banner tries to rein in the Hulk. He doesn't want to change into the Hulk. He wants to retain his rationality and civility. Uh, and uh, when he does, well, the Hulk is not exactly evil. He's just primal, and he strikes back when he is uh, uh, attacked and so on, uh, maybe as, as an angry child would do. Uh, so in a sense, uh, the, the Hulk is, uh, is um, kind of a Freudian understanding. I mean, the sexual element isn't present in... Uh, in uh, most Hulk comics, though, in the uh, the Ultimates, written by uh, uh, Mark Millar, uh, there's a scene where the, the Hulk is uh, running after uh, uh, the Wasp, uh, who flashes him to distract him, and he says, "Hulk, I'm horny." But uh, even though it's usually not mentioned, that's uh, that's the idea. He is the the id uh, with the uh, I think of the thing from uh, Forbidden Planet, Monsters from the Id, and uh, and Banner is always trying to keep that in check, keep it controlled, and in some uh, story arcs, he manages to retain his intelligence while he's the Hulk, and that's the ideal, right? Power, but under rational control. Uh, I, I'm proud to say I bought Hulk number one off the stands when it first came out in, what, 62 or something? Yeah, boy, great stuff. Uh, it is truly amazing the Hulk has remained so popular. You'd think he's sort of Johnny One Note, but uh, no, uh, all sorts of interesting potential in the big green guy. Originally, the big gray guy. Okay, um... Mm. Okay, John Novak. Thanks, fellow Bob. Uh, John says, aside from an unwillingness to admit the evangelist felt free to make stuff up, what reason is there to posit the existence of a science source underlying John? I assume it has something to do with the question of whether or not he knew the synoptics to explain the few places he agrees with them, but I'm not 100% sure. I remember first hearing about the signs source in a class on John in college, and I recently saw it posited in a chart showing the supposed stream of transmission of the New Testament as a whole. Well, I am afraid I'm going to have to make uh, Al over here uh, wait a bit because this is really the territory of Rudy, who, who was uh, the first to delineate, as we say, a sign source. So take it away, Rudy. Huh? Danka, 
Uh, yeah, in my monumental commentary, which I can brag about since it's not really me, uh, I point out that uh, there seem to be three basic sources in the Gospel of John that have been kind of redacted together. One of them, a revelation discourse source, such as we find in the Nag Hammadi texts, um, placed in at the Last Supper, uh, and uh, paramountly, though there are others. And uh, then there is the Passion narrative, which has uh, parallels with the synoptics and probably is dependent at least upon Mark. Though uh, English scholars like uh, Chuck over here seem to think that uh, it was a collection of independent tradition fragments put together in a different manner. Hey, Pip, Pip, that's quite right, Rudy, and I'm waiting for you to come around to my opinion. Well, it'll be a cold day in hell, which doesn't exist when that happens, Chuck. But anyway, the sign source was the third one. It, it, uh, the reason, for, one of the reasons for positing its existence is that we have, um, signs or miracles, that, uh, seven of them, which parallel uh, to uh, give a little credit here, Paul Achtemeyer, with a good Deutsch last name, uh, has pointed out that uh, there are two sequences of seven miracles in the Gospel of Mark, which more or less parallel the seven miracles in the Gospel of John, which imply a source, uh, perhaps changing as it passed from one hand to another, but remaining basically intact. Uh, and uh, basically each was a simple miracle story. Now, um, in the Gospel of John, each is made the hook from which is hung one of these discourses. Uh, they are interpreted almost allegorically uh, by the fourth evangelist. Uh, and uh, if one looks closely, one sees that the miracle stories must have been numbered, enumerated. Uh, we hear that the water into wine miracle uh, was um, the first of his miracles that the disciples saw and believed. And then we hear about uh, the uh, resurrection of the Herodian official's uh, son. Uh, and this is said to be the second one. Well, no others are illuminated uh, enumerated in this way, but then he didn't simply Xerox them. He, he used the, the source, the stories for his own purposes and edited them and decided to drop the numbers. But that they were numbered throughout is implied by the ending of, of chapter 20, the original ending of the gospel, where he says, Jesus did many other signs, but these have been recorded so that you may believe and believing have eternal life, etc. Uh, that sounds like a wrap-up uh, of a set of seven miracle stories. And uh, so this is the basis for it. And other scholars have uh, de developed this further, inclu including the great Robert Fortner. So I, I recommend, besides my extremely great commentary, is the excellent book by Fortner called The Signs Gospel. So I, I hope, uh, Johann, uh, that this uh, answers uh, your question. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, thanks a bunch, uh, Rudy. 
Uh, let's hear one from Luther here. Uh, who says, I regularly hear that many modern critical scholars are both Christians and hold certain mainstream positions regarding the, sus the suspect history of books such as the pastorals, at least uh, one of the epistles of Peter, etc. What I've never heard is how do you, those scholars consider uh, those questionable books in terms of biblical authority. Having been raised as a conservative Lutheran for whom biblical authority and inspiration were paramount and then moved directly to atheism without any real middle ground, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I know it's hard to generalize, but do you know whether as Christians they tend to accept the books as pious forgeries and still somehow inspired as scripture? Or do they disregard them and consider themselves Christians whose personal Bible simply lacks eight or ten books? Or is there some other typical explanation? Uh, this is an entirely, oh, let's see here. Um, okay, let me, uh, let me uh, hand that one over to al <laughs> Much obliged. Evel uh, Luther, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, these uh, these uh, scholars who kicked me, uh, who are kicked out of the, rudely booted out of uh, the Catholic Church for being modernists, uh, we found that it was uh, at first possible to imagine such pseudonymity, pseudepigraphy, as compatible with uh, uh, scriptural authority because the scriptural authority was uh, itself a function of church authority. It was the church that preceded the, the Bible, after all. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, uh, the, the, however they uh, arrived at the canon, it was the work we, we thought of the Holy Spirit, no? And... Um, so it didn't matter so much. Was it really Paul who wrote the pastorals? Was it really Peter who wrote the first or second Peter? Who cares? C'est la vie. Uh, because they're in the canon that the church established. So I argued quite effectively, I think, that uh, the, uh, the, the critical matters did not uh, concern us, should not concern us, because it was all the building, accumulating growth of a great oak from a tiny acorn. Uh, so, of course, it mutated, it evolved. Uh, what, what would one expect? Uh, but the church uh, did not see it uh, in such a way uh, until uh, more recent times when it was too late for me, but uh, I didn't mind. I was having fun anyway as a skeptic. Um, uh, let's see um, what else merits my clever comments. Uh, Uh, let me uh, give you a report of a clairvoyant vision I had of the Jesus Seminar. Uh, once Elaine Pagels was uh, talking about her book, The Origin of Satan, and uh, she mispronounced my name. Uh, she said, well, uh, Loisy said uh, thus and so. And, uh, and Julian Hill, an erudite fellow of the seminar, looked astonished that she did not know how to say my 
famous name. Uh, and uh, But I mention this because Julian Hill is a great example of someone who is not even a liberal uh, theologically, believes in the whole Nicene Creed and, and so forth, but uh, he doesn't believe miracles ever happened. He certainly doesn't believe in the uh, traditional authorship of these documents. Uh, he sees the two as completely different. And I would say that this is uh, characteristic in one way or the other of uh, most liberal mainstream academics. And the linchpin is that they say, Okay, uh, so we don't know who wrote these books. Many of them were pseudepigraphs. That that uh, rascal Bart Ehrman says that's just a euphemism and uh, we should call them pious frauds. But they don't like to do that, you see. And so uh, they say, okay, it was just the use of a nom de plume. Uh, but everybody did it in the ancient world. Nobody was taken in, so there was no real fraud or deception. Uh, of course, uh, I no longer had the need to make up such excuses, having dropped the whole business, uh, and uh, it's more and more difficult, but it doesn't really matter, because everyone reads their views into the scripture, uh, rather than getting them out. So really, who cares who wrote it? Could have been Balzac who wrote uh, the Gospels. Uh, at, uh, doesn't, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, thanks, uh, Al. Uh, let me hand uh, this concluding question from Luther over to Price. Hey, get get back over here, Price. Uh, here's one for you. This is an entirely subjective question for you. Obviously, you aren't a Christian and you accept that there are contradictions throughout the Bible. But if you were a somewhat conservative Christian, however you might define that position and set of beliefs, what one book of the Bible would you consider the most problematic to your belief, the most embarrassing, the most open to attack from the outside, and why? Ooh, just speaking for myself and not for these great giants of biblical criticism we have here, uh, but I am nonetheless a super fan of, of the Bible. Um, I guess I'd have to say Ecclesiastes is the toughest one. Uh, it has had uh, garnishes added redactionally of more or less orthodox opinions about God and piety, but essentially it's sort of Greco-Roman pessimism that life is meaningless. It's just an empty round of doing the same damn thing all over again. That's That, I think, is tough. I'm not saying it's nefarious. Uh, even by a Christian standard, uh, though though it would be mistaken, right? But uh, it uh, certainly doesn't fit with the idea that there's a grand cosmic purpose uh, and that you and I are signing up with either God or the devil and uh, uh, we're living an increasingly sanctified Christian life and we're going to heaven. I mean, all of that's out the window if Ecclesiastes is true. And to show you how little it comports with the Christian worldview, the uh, editors of the New Schofield Reference Bible, in their introduction to Ecclesiastes, say, this is a divine um, recording of an unregenerate view of life. 
Oh, well, that's great. You know, you, you could really say that about any book of the Bible, right? It's uh, uh, just because it's inspired it doesn't mean that uh, it's worth anything. It doesn't mean that you should take what it says seriously. I mean, you could turn this around and say, God is trying to show you the error of being a credulous religious fanatic who believes in stuff like the rapture and snake handling, right? Because it's in there, but of course, they couldn't really have uh, mentioned it, take it serious. I mean, you, you can make the Bible a ventriloquist dummy uh, any way you want. Oh, let's see. Uh, um, this is from our friend uh, Leonard McCoy. And I'll just take over the rest of the show. Thanks, guys. You can go out and uh, do whatever great dead scholars do for fun. Okay, um, I would like to thank you once again for all your work, and in particular, most recently, for Holy Fable, which truly does seem to distill a great deal of your thought down, as well as providing an exhaustive and voluminous list of sources. That's what it's there for. This might be a good segue into my question. When you write a scholarly book or paper, do you typically just write out the entirety of your argument and add in the relevant references later? Or do you stop and start inserting references as you go or some mixture of the two? Uh, it's uh, just a matter of whim, uh, Bones, uh, because uh, sometimes I'll just Note that uh, if I can't remember the exact reference, I know it's in 1 Corinthians something, so I'll put 1 Corinthians and leave a blank. Sometimes I just go back and fill them all in later, as I do with the footnotes. It's really the same thing. I may try to minimize the amount of work I have to do after the basic writing and plug in uh, resources, whether biblical references or, or footnote references, as I go. But Sometimes it's kind of fun to hunt them down, so I do wait. But, of course, you, you don't want to lose the train of thought. So uh, I, I see what you mean there. It might not be a good good idea to do that necessarily. But you don't want to skip stuff and forget you need to, to do it. Um, let's see. Uh, long ago, as a Ph.D. student, Bones says, I found that after I had read the same articles for several years and become conversant with the inch wide, mild, deep subject matter of my thesis, I could use more of the former approach as I knew in my mind exactly whom I was quoting and when. Good, yes. Uh, however, as my research interests became considerably more eclectic after the PhD, medical school, and being in practice, there have certainly been times when I needed to stop writing for a minute or hours to find a reference to support a point that I was making, or at the very least, uh, to make sure that someone else had not already done it first and would then deserve proper credit. It's... Uh, let's see. You ever seen footnotes in scholarly books where they say, oops, uh, gee, I didn't know, but uh, Alfred E. Newman had already made this argument in a book that came to my attention too late to be discussed here. I've always found that kind of oddly comforting. Right? They, they felt like, look, I'm not just ditching the thing because somebody, because I'm... Uh, reinventing the wheel, I'll just, you know, refer to the other guy and so as not to try to cheat him out of the credit. 
Okay, um, Bones says, it seems like the acquisition of a firm frame of reference and detailed knowledge to hang upon it may be equally difficult uh, as, although of a different nature from, the creativity necessary for scholarly work. I would greatly appreciate your thoughts on this, as I have not ruled out someday trying to submit something to the Journal of Higher Criticism, but only after I've read a great deal more. I had better be ready. I heard the editor is a real tyrant. Uh, Yeah, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I've always uh, told people who wanted to write for Crypt of Cthulhu about Lovecraft and all that, or who had ideas for articles that they they better know the the previous discussion because um it is embarrassing to have something that's merely reinventing the wheel i remember an article in the journal of higher criticism that was really fascinating and i did not know at the time any more than the author did that someone had already made the whole point he was making uh, well, I try to avoid that because it shows that <laughs> I'm as ignorant as the uh, article writer is, right? You know, I sh- he should have known, I should have known. Uh, so uh, it is good to know as much as you can. And uh, um, one good uh, resource for this, well, now I guess the computer, the internet uh, can dig up all sorts of things. Uh, when I was doing my second dissertation, I made good use of the New Testament abstracts, uh, which uh, are organized by uh, the, the book of the Bible about which various articles have been written. And you and it has little abstracts, obviously, uh, to show you what the, the point of the article is. Uh, that is a very great help. Uh, and uh, I don't think there's any such thing for uh, Lovecraft or Howard scholarship, but obviously in, you're interested in biblical scholarship. Uh, so uh, that would be a great aid. Also, though, if you were reading modern uh, contemporary works that that seem to bear at all on your topic, uh, you can uh, check out their references because a lot of them will have uh, references to what other people are saying. But it is important. You know, I remember my old pastor, Don Morris, saying that he wondered if he would ever merit a footnote anywhere. Uh, And uh, he said, uh, I don't know because I'm going to have to read so much before I dare write anything. Well, he's right. You you really do need to know the field because not only a bigger danger is that not only that somebody might have already come up with your point, so you're merely reiterating it, Uh, But it might be that someone has shown that the point you're making is impossible. Somebody may have refuted it before you read it. I remember noticing that on one topic you had uh, Martin DeBailey's arguing about what uh, a certain thing in the Book of Acts meant. And um, I I thought this was odd because... uh, 
Strauss or one of the earlier critics had already exploded the idea. He'd raised it up and said, well, this is, you might want to think this, but it's really impossible because of so-and-so. Whoops! Of course, that was a great thing to point out. I mean, there's always this uh, jockeying for recognition. You want, I mean, that's why people... Uh, do new themes. I mean, of course, they, they want to advance the discussion and shed new light on it. There's also this thing, hey, look at me. I came up with something nobody else did. Sometimes that, uh, that um, desire to overthrow the current authorities and to become one yourself tends to distort the... Um, uh, just one second here. The, the person's argument, like, for instance, I find some of what Jonathan Z. Smith says to be dubious in its own right, but then I ask, why is he arguing this way? He's trying to debunk Mercia Eliade and uh, the, uh, oh, uh, Sir James Fraser and those who talk about dying and rising gods. I think just to uh, you know turn on the older generation and uh, kill the father so you can be the head honcho. I don't know. I'm not a mind reader, but you, it's the, called the anxiety of influence, as I think uh, Harold Bloom calls it, where you you want to minimize any debt you owe to previous scholars so you'll look uh, like Mr. Smart Guy. But anyway, you cut it. You do need to know as much about the current and and previous discussion. There's another problem, right? Because a number of times I have seen scholars make a suggestion about something that they don't know has already been made, uh, or they are not even aware of earlier discussion, or they are only second or third hand aware of it and misrepresent the view that they are trying to supersede. Uh, my favorite example of that uh, would be the cursory dismissal of Harnack's fascinating argument that the Epistle to the Hebrews was written by Priscilla. I devote a decent amount of space to that in Holy Fable, Volume 3. I have only ever read, in references to this, tossed off remarks that Harnack thought a woman might have written this because in chapter 11, with this Valhalla of biblical heroes, there are two or three women mentioned. Uh, well, that's not much. Harnack himself mentions that as only a side note and not very important. His, he has a very elaborate, ingenious argument that they just, these latter day punks just ignore because they probably never read the essay in question. So I, my, uh, approach has been to try to research the history of scholarship as widely as I can. Of course, I've been at this for something like 46 years, um, but I uh, enjoyed every minute of it. So that would be my vacuous advice. Uh, with that, uh, is, is Bob Swirsky still, still uh, here? Um, uh, oh, okay, here he is. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, 
Uh, let's see, just having some tubigan uh, sausage and beer here. Uh, but uh, that's it for uh, the uh, Super Geeks today. Uh, maybe next time I'll be back with some other great dead scholars to discuss these matters. Thanks for being with us, and I'll see you soon. Uh, over and out. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.